1: This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more.
0: Hi there, and welcome to the show. This is Once Upon a Gene, and I'm your host, Effie Parks. I'm so grateful for you for being here today. I'm getting excited and extremely, I don't even know because I'm trying to ignore it, but we're going to fly our family of four from Seattle all the way to New Jersey at the end of June for our mb one conference. I'm super excited to meet other families. It's so special to be around rare families. If any of you ever have been, you know, and especially the ones who share your disorder. It's wondrous to like watch all the kids and how similar they are to your own child. And anyways, I'm super excited and I'm nervous about this travel thing. So send me all your good thoughts and any new tips that maybe I haven't figured out yet, because it's been a while since we've all been on a plane. I have such an incredible advocate on the show today. She's been in the rare disease space for over 10 years. What she hasn't accomplished, I'm not sure. I'm always so just like warmed and fuzzled when... I see someone's track record and how much they've accomplished and all they're working for while taking care of a rare disease child and then they also turn out to be just like the warmest, most chill, most relatable people. She's one of them. We're covering a lot of stuff because like I said she's she's kind of a powerhouse and she's an SCN8A mom. You might remember Madeline Uden from a few episodes back a severe epilepsy. Her son, Elliot, has one of the most severe variants, and she's. we're going to talk about something called the Inchstone Projects, which is developing new metrics for kids with developmental delays for clinical trials. She just has so much valuable information to share, and I know you're going to love this conversation. Please welcome Gabi Connacher. Hi, Gabi. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with you, Effie. Yes. Well, one of my favorite moms in the entire world, Madeline Uden, and a fellow SCN8A mom, messaged me about you. So I was like, duh, don't care who she is. Send her on. Anything for you. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to it. You have quite the group of parents over there at SCNA Day, I have to say. We do. We've got a lot of amazing people in our community. Well, you're kind of one of the OGs. So can I get a little background on you and your family and how you all got started? Yeah, no,
1: absolutely. So my son, Elliot, was diagnosed with SCNA Day in 2014, not too long after the discovery of SCNA Day was made. So when we were given the diagnosis, there were about like maybe a 10 or so other people that were known in the world. And so there just was not a lot happening at the time. And I was kind of in shock because I think a lot of, you know, rare parents are if they get a diagnosis, they're like, great, we have an answer now we know what to do, right? And the doctor's like, we have no idea what to do. So (laughs) um, as many people listening probably can relate to. So we said, okay, well, my mother, Jayetta, and I put our heads together and said, okay, well, I guess we have to do something because we don't want to sit around and wait. So um, we founded Wishes for Elliot in 2014, which has evolved into the International SCNAD Alliance. And we have just been hyper-focused on Making sure that families are getting what they need, we're finding answers, we're researching, we're pushing forward the field in a lot of different ways. And so that's kind of what started me on this journey in working with the rare epilepsy space was that SCNA day diagnosis.
0: Awesome. Can you touch a little bit on how Wishes for Elliot transformed it into the into the SNDA alliance?
1: Yeah, yeah. So basically we started Wishes for Elliot and the tagline was advancing SCNA Day research. So we were really focused on saying, how do we make sure that we are finding the best possible treatments and a cure, hopefully, as quickly as possible? And so to do that, you know, within five months of getting the diagnosis, we held the first scientific meeting of SCNA day researchers and clinicians that had ever come together. And and in doing so, we connected with Michael Hammer, the geneticist who discovered scn in his daughter, actually, and many other amazing, you know, doctors and uh, researchers at that time. But since the very beginning, we partnered with Michael Hammer, and he has his foundation, you know, the Shea and the Hammer Research Foundation, and wishes for Eli. Really, and we decided to merge after working together for many years in order to put all of our our heads together and work expeditiously to find answers for families. And the alliance was really based on the idea that we have got to work together if we're going to get there. We've got to work together to reach the finish line, make sure we're not duplicating efforts, we're not stepping on each other's toes, and you know, bringing everyone into the room to have the conversation together. And it's evolved incredibly. We started a global alliance, and we now work with just about every group in the world that's working in SCNA, SCNA Italy, Netherlands, France, China, and the idea really is let's Let's come together and make sure that we're making an ambitious research plan to tackle
0: this terrible disorder as quickly as possible. Dang, I mean- Gummy. <laughs> I can't believe you did that after five months. With that with that first meeting, what a wave of, of just like adrenaline that must have been that kind of pushed things forward for you.
1: Yeah, it's been an evolution. I mean, it started a little slower and then we started picking up the pace in the last few years has just been just rapid fire and finding so many more allies and families who are like, let's not... We're not waiting. We got to get stuff done. Let's do this.
0: Yeah. I have so much respect for you and other organizations who realize the importance of working together. And I know that's that's a point of contention for so many groups and there's so many problems involved with it. And it's really unfortunate. So high five. I think that's amazing. And I hope it wasn't too painful and that you you have some success that you could perhaps privately share to someone if they have any inquiries about how to get that done.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Happy to talk with anyone. And it's I mean, it's just a sad fact that, you know, people are very high emotion working to find answers for their kids and people don't always see eye to eye. But we've been super lucky that the global community is excited to to work together and really find answers. So You know, we're about to launch a new campaign to develop a global research agenda with all of our partners. And this is on the heels of a global effort to develop the first diagnosis and treatment guidelines for our community, which we're doing with um, more than 30 pediatric epileptologists from 15 countries and five continents and a diverse group of caregivers to say, okay, what can we absolutely say that we know about this disorder? How do we get parents connected to the right resources? resources. Get ensure that kids based on what kind of phenotype they have, how they present, that they get the right medications as soon as possible. Because just like in all these other rare epilepsies and rare disorders, our kids are guinea pigs and we're just so tired of it. We just we need better answers for our kids.
0: How do you do that? How do you do the reaching out globally so well and offer these resources for families to access and connect with countries like China and Japan and South Africa and all over? Like, how do you get that job done? It's persistence. I mean, I don't
1: sleep a lot, which you probably don't either. I lay in bed at night thinking about all of these things and how do we connect the pieces and how do we make sure that the things are moving as quickly as possible. And that's just building connections, you know? So you see families that are interested and excited and you say, let's do this. Let's do it together. Let's talk about where the gaps are and how we can fill them. Let's, you know, one of the most incredible things about the SCNA day community is that we have this SCNA day dad who just happened to be a geneticist that discovered SCNA day. And I tell you, Every single weekend, we are meeting on Zoom with families to talk about SCNA Day. He's explaining the genetics. He's helping um, families to see, you know, what we're learning from our eight-year longitudinal registry. So we've got intense amount of data on almost 400 patients when we have maybe 700 worldwide. It's just an astonishing amount of data and participation from this amazing community who have stepped up and said, yes, I want my experience to count. Yes, I want to share what's going on, the good things, the bad things, what's working, what's not working. And so we have this unique opportunity because we have a geneticist to explain the disorder, what we're learning about it. And it's a support network. You know, we're not just explaining the science on these things. Families are saying, these are our challenges. This is what's happening. And that other families on the call can say, we've seen that too. This has helped for us. And then we can go back to the registry and say, okay, you're not alone. A lot of people are struggling with this. This is what we're hearing from families is working. So it's really looking at this from the, the vantage point of everybody involved in saying, how can we help families get what they need? How do we connect researchers to families and pharmaceutical companies to families and researchers to clinicians and clinicians to research? So it's just, we're trying to break down the silos that end up inevitably happening in a lot of these spaces and say, let's all work together, let's all talk, because what you're learning in your lab could really help what's happening in this clinical trial, right? And so it's just being open to any and every possibility and communicating and and really being committed to reaching that end goal together as fast as possible.
0: Mm, I feel like I just listened to a motivational speech. Ah.
1: So good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You can book me online. No, I'm kidding. Definitely not. <laughs>
0: You know what I love? So there's a couple common things that I hear all the time and rightfully so, but also not necessarily. You know, I hear patient advocacy group leaders saying couple things like we don't want to confuse the families and we don't want to overwhelm the families. And in turn, what that does a lot of the time is they're not explaining the things to the families and they're not trusting that these families are open and ready to learn and need that information or just need a little bit of you know, smaller bites of it, but that they want to show up and they want to figure it out and they want to be able to ask questions and not feel stupid. And that, sure, you don't want to overwhelm them and you don't want to confuse them, but that doesn't mean gatekeeping. My gosh, I love that you just said that, Effie, because I feel so strongly
1: that if we do not give caregivers and parents every opportunity to absorb and engage in any opportunity that comes up, We are doing a disservice not only to them, but to our entire community, because we can often underestimate what um, caregivers are up for, right? If there's something that we see a straight line or even a curvy line towards better treatments or care for our kids, caregivers are going to hop on that. And if we try to say, oh, it's too much, they've had too much, we gotta like, we have to protect them. I don't wanna coddle my families. I want to give them every opportunity to see what's happening. We do this incredible um series called SCNA They Unraveled, where we take recent publications of scientific, you know, literature and research that's been going on, and we meet with these researchers and we break it down into plain English. So that every family, no matter what education level you have, if you understand science or not, you're going to be able to access all of the latest research in this disorder so that you can take that information and bring it to your doctor and say, I heard this. Can we talk about this? Or, you know, you know, I heard that, you know, this is potentially something that might come up for SCNAD families. What's my risk? Right. So it gives families the opportunity to really have access to all of the information is out there, instead of saying, oh, it's in in science jargon, you know, they don't need to know about it. We'll, We'll break it down, you know, and say, here's some little tidbit. We want them to get the full picture and ensure that they have access to any clue that's going to help them find better answers for their kids because when we do that they then come back to us and say oh my gosh you know what that brought up something for me this is something that's going on with my kid and then we get new hypotheses that we start to study and learn from and ask other families about and that's what how we learn because we listen to families and we give them access to all the possible information we can
0: yes i love that and i love that unraveled session that you hold I mean, that could be valuable for people who aren't even dealing with the same disease to even just like get ideas, but to also kind of hear the language and see how things are broken down. That could be really helpful for more than SCNA patients and families, that's for sure. And yeah, when you're giving people the information and the access and you're empowering them and you're trusting them and you're letting them decide what they can handle and what they can't handle and what they want to know, you're just building them up. And when you can build someone up, especially when they're going through the ringer, like this, you almost no doubt will inspire them to take action of some kind.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think we're all kind of figuring it out as we go along. And the problem is, is when you're a PAG, uh, you know, leader, we are so overwhelmed with what we could possibly be doing in our communities. You know, we are basically at the forefront of discovery and and opening up the possibility of new things for our community. So everything you choose to do means that you're not doing something else, right? So mm-hmm. I think, um, and I'm seeing more groups do this where they're kind of doing this unraveling and they're kind of helping families understand the basic science. Um, I think it is kind of emerging. And I think- and i'm hoping that we don't all have to do the same thing over and over again you know and i think you know we pull from resources like Drave, you know they have incredible resources there they're like our older siblings in this space they've been mm-hmm. around a lot longer um And we also do work through a project called Deep Connections. It's like the Developmental and Epileptic Encephalopathy Project. And the idea there is is that let's not have the same thing going on over and over and over again. It's like, okay, if we are talking about uh, autonomic dysfunction in people with rare epilepsies, we're all going to have the same questions. And so we do a webinar on that and we open it up and we bring caregivers on to talk about it. We bring in professional experts to talk about it and they go, and then we like record it and we put it online and families can ask their questions. And it's just, it becomes an enduring resource for the DEE community, right? Um, This group of rare epilepsies, then they can go there and say, oh my gosh, is this what's going on? Instead of all of us having to make these resources over and over and over again for each of our communities.
0: Yeah, for the families that are newer to this or haven't heard, can you can you give me a little more of like a understanding of what Deep Connections is?
1: Yeah, yeah, and maybe I'll back up a little bit and say what DEEs are because that's a newer term, um, especially for families. And that um, was a term coined about five or six years ago, developmental and epileptic encephalopathies. And essentially that means in lay language, which I need to use because I don't speak science, that this really hard to control epilepsy, often refractory epilepsy that is not able to be treated with the current drugs on the market, accompanied by developmental delays and or regressions. You know, it's more than epilepsy idea, um, is what DEEs are. And, you know, this kind of came about Deep Connections, the idea for it, because my son, Elliot, is really severely impacted. So, you know, he's 10 years old, but he's like a two-week-old in a lot of ways. He doesn't yet have head control. He's got a visual impairment. He can't use his hands. He doesn't sit on his own. He can't walk. He can't talk. He's exclusively fed by a J-tube. So he's got All of these medical complexity, he's a beautiful, you know, adorable, sweet, loving kid who I can talk a lot about other things in that department as well. But for the challenges of these medical complex families, we wanted to try to develop resources for those families who are up Googling all night, you know, GI problems, you know, nonstop diarrhea or, you know, whatever it is that's going on with their kids and trying to find answers and so we kind of reached out to a lot of our sister organizations like, you know, Families S2A or DRIV or CACNA 1A. And we said, do you guys have a spectrum, right? Do you have kind of a more severe end of the spectrum? And can you provide services and education to those families? And everybody said, we do. And we can't. So DEEP was formed really with the sense of like, let's do it together and not replicate the wheel, you know, over and over again. And in the last three years, we've done over 70 webinars with a lot of our patient advocacy groups, researchers, clinicians, NIH, CDC, Cure Epilepsy, you know, Epilepsy Foundation. And the idea is, is we, get these sessions we record them we put them online and then families can go and find them anytime that they're looking for resources
0: on any given topic that is so cool thank you for making that and i've i've heard that sentiment about the dravet syndrome patient advocacy group so many times and they are just such a model like i know our friend mike gralia from syngap Modeled his entire pack off of it, and I have some special friends in the Gervais community, and they are all just so passionate and so driven and so transparent, which I think is one of their one of their superpowers. Oh yeah, and they are so incredibly giving. You know, like
1: I think of this like first generation groups like Drave and TSC Alliance. And we all reach out to them and say, hey, can you share this? And they're always willing. And I think that's what, again, it comes back to in the end. It's all about we have to lift each other up and collaborate to, to reach the end goal here.
0: OK, so I'll, I want to move into this Inchstones project. Oddly enough, I was talking to my dear friend Daniel DeFabio today and we were talking about surveys and how painfully heart breaking and distressing they can be for families like ours when you're checking the box no for everything. And the questions just kind of seem to ask the same thing over and over. So that's a whole other bag of things, but it's connected, obviously. So can can you tell me a little bit, of, or actually a lot, about the Inchstone project? I could talk for a very long time. How much <laughs> time do you have? I'm kidding. I just started lighting those things on fire and refusing to fill them out. That's oh, how I-, I handled it. <laughs> I love it. Just bring your own personal shredder and just like, nope, not doing it again. Not today, Satan.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, you. I mean, you laid it out so perfectly, right? Which is like the tools that exist to measure progress in our children are not made for kids who have more significant health conditions, right? And with the onset of more precision medicine and genetic therapies, um, we just really felt the need to ensure that our kids were not left behind. So this is about equity as much as anything else in that we have to change the way that we measure progress, not just in clinical trials, but in clinical care, so that we can truly start to understand progress our kids are making. And like I said, you know, my son Elliot is 10. He doesn't have head control, but he's making progress. But there are currently no tools that can show that, okay, he used to hang his head down at 90 degrees. Now it's at 75 degrees. Wait, no, he's moved up to 30 degrees. That is progress. And that is hard-earned progress. It has to be counted. So to tackle this, what we did and is basically reach out to people who we knew were starting to work in this space like Ann Berg and Jenny Downs, who are like you know these legends in the space of clinical outcome assessments. And we said, might you want to work together on this because this is a huge issue? And they said, yes. And we're like, oh my gosh. And so we like have assembled this dream team of clinical outcome assessment researchers and um, clinicians and, you know, a group of people who are wanting to work together on this. And we've been working the last year and a half on it. And, you know, the way that Anne Berg puts it, which I think is so brilliant um, to help people understand, is that, for example, if you had a little baby mouse, right, and you wanted to see how this, this mouse was growing, you can see it before your very eyes, it's getting bigger every day, and it's it's growing, right? And so what you do is you put it on your bathroom scale, and you say, oh, no progress today, and the same thing tomorrow, and the next day, and there's never any change. It's because we're using the wrong tools To measure what's going on and that's exactly what's happening with our kids we do those assessments every time we're in clinic and we never get to show any progress our goal is to take those tools that exist stretch them out so that we can capture
0: the progress among more and more of our populations. I personally wouldn't mind one of those scales that don't change ever. Okay. Well, talk to me about how you do that. How are you re how are you reframing the questions or how are you measuring things? Like what what have you come up with?
1: Yeah. So um we've just been incredibly lucky to get this incredible group of women who they're all just all happen to be women on our team. And we do a lot of talking and reading. We use the FDA guidances a lot on this to help guide how we're doing this. And people like Anberg have been adapting tools for a long time, and Jenny Downs has been creating new tools. So we've just we've got some in-house expertise, which is amazing. And what we do now is we start with families, right? I mean, everything. this is a patient run project and everything we do is going to be really centered on them. So over the summer last year, we jumped right in and we did a, you know, one of our patient advocacy group partners, Families SCN2A, had a a meeting going on with families there. And we said, let's go to that meeting and test some of these tools. How do they work? What does it look like? What's working? What's not working? Um, Are these tools sensitive to cortical vision impairment? Are these tools sensitive to kids who, you know, are not able to independently move? So that was an incredible amount of data and learning that we did just in testing 10 kids. So that's where we started. And then we took that learning, we presented it at the American Epilepsy Society meeting, got more feedback from um, our professional colleagues, and we've built a support team around us too. So it's not just our research team. We have a steering committee of experts who are clinicians and researchers in this space that help guide um, our work. And we also have industry or pharmaceutical companies that are sitting at the table with us to help us look at what we're doing and say, is this going to work in a clinical trial? So we're really pulling in everybody. We've got patient advocates, we've got pharmaceutical companies, we've got researchers, we've got clinicians, and we're all working together to try to figure out where we need to go and how. And so, you know, to date, we've done that. Our goal now is that pretty soon we're going to be releasing a survey for our families that is going to get at the heart of what matters most to us, right? So, you know, Effie, if I asked you, what do you most want to see? That's what we need to base these surveys off of. That's what we need to base these tools on. And one of the things I said was head control, right? That's like one of the earliest things that we see in development. If we can start to measure that, Then we can, you know, capture some of these kids. Um, We're adapting a coma recovery scale, right? Because everybody knows that if you have a traumatic brain injury, you're in a coma, you come out of the coma, you start very, very slowly, very small. And so why not start there? Let's use these tools. So, you know, starting with families, we're going to test this in clinic setting uh, some more. And then adapt the tools, test them, and make sure they're ready to go and start, you know, getting them into clinical trials.
0: Yeah, because then you could use it as, like, the test for the effects of the drugs, right? Like, you'll have, like, this baseline.
1: Exactly. And I don't know if you've ever done clinical trials, but we have. And it's the same thing with all of those tools. Every time I spend hours, you know, filling in something that is
0: useless. Yeah. Yeah. Not for our kids whatsoever.
1: And the sad thing is, is that not only is it just dehumanizing and depressing for us, but it's also that we could really lose some critical drugs on the market if we're not able to do this, right? I mean, right now, most of our kids who have seizure disorders, the primary outcome in these trials is, are they reducing seizures? But seizures are really important, but it's not everything, right? Almost every family and community I talk to, one of the biggest challenges they have is communication. We don't have a good way to measure that kind of communication in kids like ours. Some of our kids communicate with grunts, with eyebrow raises, with turning their head. Those are not really on standard tools right now. And if these trials that are coming down the pike for all of these rare disorders don't have ways of truly being able to look at, sensitively measure you know, meaningful change, and that's meaningful for us, you and me, right, then they're going to stand to potentially lose millions and millions of dollars worth of, of work that they put into a drug that could potentially be helping. They just can't show it.
0: Oof, that's important what you just said right there. It makes me think of this conversation I had yesterday with my friend Kim Aldinger, who's a parent of two affected kiddos. And she's also a scientist. And we were talking about this frustration, oddly enough, too, her son, Grayson, has the head control situation like Elliot does. And she was talking about you know, these questions on the surveys and she was like, well, he can hold his head up, but it isn't like a consistent thing and it's down all the time. But when I do get him to hold him his head up, is it because he really wanted something? Is it was it intentional? Was it this or was it that? And you can't just answer a question on a survey when you don't know why and when it's happening.
1: Yeah, no, that's so important. And I think one of the things that we're starting to see the FDA coming around to also is um, more personalized tools So one of our researchers, um, Cher Chapman, runs a company called Ardea Outcomes and they have a tool called goal attainment scaling. And it's this amazing tool that has been used in clinical trials uh, already that measures progress against oneself. So I'm not measuring Elliot against standard 10 year old kids and what they can do. I'm measuring Elliot against Elliot. What could Elliot do at the start of this clinical trial and what can he do at the end? And when you do it that way, Just think of how much you could stand to measure if you're really looking at an individual's progress as opposed to some, you know, generalized questions on a form.
0: That seems so obvious and basic to me. Why do you think that things like that haven't necessarily been implemented just because change is hard or because the ideology over like a control group and all of this stuff is so important? And like, why is that?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think probably it has something to do with the fact that a lot of what we've been has been done has been like looking at like, you know, a population of kids, you know, in a trial over time and not necessarily really looking at the individualized version of progress. Right. And I think it's emerging as something that is is more seen as uh, valid, but previously, you know, everything has to be, and still it does have to be, but it has to be, you know, validated in a very specific way. And you have to show progress over time and repeatedly within um, a group and a population. And so there's just so many requirements as to how these tools have been made in the past that I think, you know, it's just really starting to become more common that people are thinking we can do it this way.
0: We just have to adapt it a little bit and get a little bit more creative about how we're doing this. Mm-hmm. Which if anyone's good at it, I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question about the clinical trial stuff. I've been a part of this community for a couple years now, and I've been involved with many events and conversations. And I see them now. I just saw one again on yesterday on LinkedIn. These conversations that are being held at conferences about designing the clinical trial with the patient in mind. Why are we still just having that conversation? What is changing? You've said you've been in a lot of clinical trials. Have you seen things adapted and changed in your experience? And is this inchstone stuff being implemented now, like on an experimental level? Will it be soon? Like, when is the change going to happen? And when are we going to stop just hearing kind of the lip service about it, I guess, to be a little sassy?
1: (laughs) And rightfully so. I mean, I think it's been necessitated because we've seen a lot of promising things fail. Right, we've seen things in clinical trials where we thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be the answer. It's you know looks great. We've got all the, everything lined up, and then they just couldn't measure it right. And I think that we're starting to come around to the idea that we have to think creatively to have this, to be more successful, and frankly, to get more treatments out the door faster. So that these, you know, now what 10,000 rare disorders, we have got to be aggressive. It's it's taken far too long to get where we are. In terms of Inchstone's stuff that's going on right now, we're working to try to get these into clinical trials. It's going to take a little time to adapt them a bit so that they are, um, these tools are kind of stretched out and they have more room. You know, it's called a floor effect. Um, when our kids don't meet any of the Progress on any of these tools, and we're trying to stretch it down below that floor, so that kids who are, you know, several levels below what the first skill is on there have room to be um, measured. So we're working with these with our industry group to ensure that these tools are uh, ready for use in trials. That hopefully they're going to start using them. It's called as an exploratory measure, where it's not a primary outcome. Um, and then once we can prove that these are effective and valid tools for measuring progress, then they can start being used as primary outcomes. And the difference with a primary outcome and, and exploratory or secondary, the primary outcomes, if they don't meet those primary outcomes, they don't get to market. So that's why we want to see these eventually become, you know, tools that are used as primary outcomes and, you know, things like quality of life, which, you know, Jenny Downs has an incredible tool that we're adapting to capture quality of life in our kids and that is if there's any valid measure out there i think that's it all of us we want a better quality of life for our kids and so we just need to be able to measure it
0: mm, i love that so much i think quality of life is what people are talking about when they use the word cure and i think that can get confused pretty easily by people listening or not listening rather well thank you for being a part of that gabi i'm like kind of blown away you're so smart and amazing and you've started these foundations and you're you have a global reach and you're offering all these resources and you're building other collaborations and you're creating so much and I don't know how you do that even without sleeping because there's only 24 hours so wow
1: really I I surround myself with really amazing (laughs) people and I mean that's the only way to get anything done no person alone is going to be able to do anything it's just that I've been able lucky enough to just seek out and find and ask people I said well can we do this together and when you ask a lot of people are willing. So.
0: Amen. Yeah. I welcome a survey. I I hate surveys, but I welcome a survey that won't ask me in 900 different questions if Ford walks and how he walks. So I, (laughs) this is such important work. Exactly.
1: And we need to be able to celebrate these, those inch stones that Ford and Elliot and all of our kids make, right? They're not necessarily meeting these milestones. We kind of back it up and say, there are these smaller bits of progress happening, these inch stones, and we have to celebrate every single one of them and count them. These kids work so hard. It's not fair if if those don't get counted.
0: Amen. I actually even stopped calling it inchstones a while ago because I was tired of all of the measurements. And now I just refer to them as Ford's greatest hits. Ah,
1: I love that.
0: <laughs> Individualized, yeah. right? There it is. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you for being a part of creating that. I'm so excited to know like how much momentum it's gotten and how much interest it's gotten. And clearly it's going to be a more effective way to measure development and assess stuff for our kids. So that is so cool. How can PAGS get involved in anything that you're doing or other groups that might have interest, like anyone outside the SCN8A Mm -hmm. community, like how can they partner with anything that you're doing and or use your resources?
1: Yeah. I mean, anything that we have out there, anybody can use. I have no proprietary, you know what I mean? I, you know, I think that's really, if one of us can win, then you know i want it to be a win for as many people as possible so you know visit our website if you see something there and you want to talk about it just Send me a message. I mean, I'm super open. I love taking meetings with new groups with groups that have been a while or maybe just finding us. You know, deep connections is open to any patient advocacy group who wants to be a part of it and, and find ways of getting better better information for our families to be able to uh, feel empowered and advocate for their kids. And for Inchstone, you know, if you are interested in this kind of work, be in touch because you know we have patient advocates who help guide our work um we're about to be putting out this survey that I mentioned and we want to get as many families as possible to fill that out so that when we're developing these tools your voice is heard and you can make sure that what we're doing will include your kid
0: okay well please keep me posted on when that survey comes out and I will definitely share it with this community listening for sure and tell them exactly what the what to expect when that survey comes out and what their contribution would be?
1: Yeah. So the survey comes in a couple of different segments, right? So it's not all at once. And um, so like 30 minutes here, 30 minutes there. It is an investment. Um, Believe me, I know that life with a rare kid, you don't get 30 minute segments. So you can save it and come back later. (laughs) And we'll offer gift cards for people. We want to respect that your time is valuable. And so, and then once you submit that, we're gonna take all the data in, You know, we're hoping we can get like anywhere between 250 and 500 families filling out that survey. We will take that data and we will push it back out to the community. We do sessions where we share with the community what we're learning and what we're seeing and how families and, and patient advocacy groups can contribute. We will publish things so that you can take it and show it to your doctor and say, "See, this is important." And uh, ultimately, you know, hopefully, within a few years, you'll be starting to see tools when you sign up for clinical trials that will actually be able to measure your kid. That's where we hope to end up. So cool.
0: Well, I just have one more question that I might sort of put you on the spot for. But my friends, Sean and Kyle from The Two Disabled Dudes, uh, have inspired me to ask some people, and I just love your energy so much, for a thank you note. So is there anyone that is top of mind right now that you would like to just send out a little thank you note to?
1: Oh, that's so cool. Wow. I have so many people that come to mind. But I mean, I think my co-founder and my mom, (laughs) Jayetta, she is the big thinker inchstone is because she saw it and said nobody's doing it okay i guess we'll do it so she's she sees the possibility there and i she's a dreamer and we have built what we've built because she is a visionary and um i'm just so lucky that i get to work with my
0: mom every day it's kind of crazy That's so beautiful. I just put a smile on my face. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have or anything that you want to leave before we close?
1: I do work in these different spaces, you know, but I think I just hope that, you know, for my journey, it's been really a long, hard one. And, you know, our SCNA community is very sadly, you know, out of 700 kids worldwide, we lost three kids in one week. And I just want each of you to think about just As hard as life is, I hope you can take the time to celebrate and love on your kids, snuggle them and celebrate every inch stone and every bit of progress that they make. Because, you know, the reality is, is we have to enjoy our kids while we've got them. And hopefully, as new treatments come out, that'll be for longer and longer. But I know I often get stuck in the weeds. So I wish people said that to me more often, you know, just stop and
0: take it in. Thank you so much for that important reminder. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, you're the best. Thank you, Gabi, for being my guest. It was so nice to meet you. I am so thrilled to know you exist. Like, thank you, Madeline, because I can't believe I haven't came across you yet.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, yes. Thank you, Madeline. I love her. I get to talk to her twice today. She's amazing. And I just I love to get to be surrounded by people like you, Effie and Madeline, who just are putting good into the world. So I'm glad to be on this journey with you.
0: Thank you. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast.
1: It's <laughs> <laughs>